Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's Friends of Europe Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on July 5th, 2022. I'm Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow in the Peace, Security and Defense Program. In this latest episode, we'll look at the military situation in Ukraine, where things may go next, the outlook for Russian gas supplies to Europe, the financial and economic situation uh, of Ukraine itself, uh, and the outcome of last week's NATO summit, and whether Western unity will hold as the economic consequences of a long war start to bite. I'm delighted to have with us this morning uh, Oksana Antonenko, an expert on geopolitics and security uh, in Russia and Eurasia, who's worked at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and she's now Director of Global Risk Analysis at Control Risks, a leading international risk consultancy. In that role, she advises businesses and international institutions on geopolitical risk. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C. We're also joined this morning by Jamie Shea, our resident senior fellow uh, at Friends of Europe and a former NATO spokesman and senior NATO official. Well, let me start with you, Oksana, if I may. How do you think the war's going? Uh, and what are the prospects? Do you expect Vladimir Putin to stop once he's captured all of Donbass or to keep driving on to try and capture Odessa? Well, first of all, thank you, Paul, for inviting me. I'm delighted to join the podcast, which I'm listening to you know, religiously uh, to, to, to get some insights on what's going on, uh, on uh, this, uh, what is likely to be a very, very long from a conflict in Europe. And, and clearly we are still very much at the early stages of this war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and therefore I think we are, of course, looking at a uh, tactical uh, changes uh, in, in this conflict. So on the tactical side, yes, this week had seen quite a number of uh, tactical successes on both sides. Uh, Ukraine has um, succeeded in uh, taking back control of the Snake Island uh, in the Black Sea, which is, of course, a very important uh, strategic location, both for the uh, southern uh, flank of this uh, war, but also, of course, for uh, any uh, prospects for uh, allowing the uh, grain, which is now stored uh, in the south of Ukraine, to travel out of their, their supports, although that, of course, still um, is very much work in progress. Uh, on the Russian side, we've seen a very substantial tactical success uh, in the taking control of the entire Luhansk region. Uh, when uh, this phase of the war started on the 24th uh, of February, um, Russia controlled about 30% of Luhansk region. Now it controls the entire Luhansk region. Uh, and uh, uh, with those tactical successes, I think Russia now controls around 20% of Ukraine's territory. And of course, we are expecting Russia will continue pushing on, now concentrating very much on Donetsk region next. Um, and that is likely to be a very protracted battle because Ukraine has a very substantial uh, forces concentrated in that second line of defense and certainly uh, will be reinforced further by the uh, Western weapon supplies, which are now coming in, although at a much slower pace than expected. Therefore, we are likely to see further fighting uh, continuing in the East uh, and perhaps uh, also some uh, initial stages of uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is likely to be concentrated more in the South along Kherson region. So not you know, major changes on the battlefield, still very much focused on, on the East, but, but uh, perhaps with more activity in the South. How likely do you think Russia is to cut off gas supplies to Europe? 
preemptively. Uh, in terms of the gas supplies, you know, clearly this is one of the major challenges now for Europe. Uh, Europe is facing, I think, three very fundamental challenges at the moment. The first one, of course, is supporting Ukraine uh, in, in, in this protracted war. The second one is uh, decoupling from dependence on Russian energy, and that is in itself a historic task, which uh, has been underway for some, for some years, but now we're, of course, seeing a very accelerated pace of that with the um, Europe uh, committed now to reduce its imports of Russian oil by 90% by the end of the year and potentially of Russian gas by two thirds by the end of the year. But of course, in the midst of that, we're also facing increasing push from Russia also to apply pressure on Europe by raising the cost of that decoupling uh, and by you know, disrupting and disconnecting uh, its own gas supplies into Europe. Uh, of course, you know, Russia is more dependent on exports of oil because it, it gets more revenues from export of oil and export of gas. But Europe is more dependent, of course, on Russia in terms of its dependence on gas. And therefore, we're seeing that kind of asymmetry where Europe is taking de de decisive steps in reducing imports of Russian oil, while Russia is trying to uh, influence Europe by reducing supply of gas. And of course, we've seen in particular you know, the reduction, substantial reduction in supply of Russian gas via Nord Stream 1. Um, and uh, certainly for Russia, uh, it will be a very uh, risky decision to take to completely disconnect Europe from, you know, its pipeline gas supplies, because unlike oil, Russia cannot redirect this gas elsewhere. It is able to redirect its oil to India, to China, but it cannot redirect its uh, gas, which is traveling by a pipeline into Europe. And therefore, it's unlikely that Russia is going to completely disconnect Europe from gas, but it certainly will continue to use gas as a geopolitical tool to be able to influence what they hope is, you know, Western public opinion, which is now increasingly feeling a punch from high uh, energy prices. This week, we, we saw uh, the beginnings of a conference on the reconstruction of Ukraine. I wondered whether that isn't really premature. I mean, at the moment, the problem seems to be how Ukraine finances itself, uh, meets its budget needs in the here and now, and how much Western aid uh, is going to be forthcoming, uh, particularly given the U.S. midterm elections coming up in November. So uh, how do you see that situation? Well, I think it is not premature to start thinking about how the reconstruction is going to proceed. And of course, it is not premature to send a very strong signal that uh, Europe in particular, but I think the Western community overall, G7 and, and beyond, are committed to reconstructing Ukraine once the war is over. And indeed, you know, already providing very substantial amount of uh, funding to, to, to help uh, Ukraine to carry on through that conflict. Of course, uh, Ukrainian economy is already very substantially under pressure from this conflict and, and is projected to potentially decline more than 50% uh, by the end of the year, of course, depending on how the, the conflict is going to evolve. Uh, and European Union has already committed um, very substantial amount of funds, more than 6 billion euros, to support Ukraine. Um, and uh, overall, I think the commitment so far from, from the West to Ukraine is about 30 billion dollars, you know, that is really to just cover the running cost uh, for the economy. So the reconstruction is the entirely separate, you know, issue from just providing the running cost. But it's very important that, uh, you know, Europe signals and the West generally signals its commitment. Um, clearly, it is going to be a very, very uh, large commitment, something which we really have not seen in the West um, since the end of the Second World War. And what was discussed at the conference this week is something which is much greater 
um, than the Marshall Plan, which was provided after the end of the Second World War. So Ukraine is estimating at the moment that it needs about $700 billion uh, you know, of uh, reconstruction assistance. What does it mean in practical terms? I think at the moment it's about signaling commitment. It's about also, of course, creating the mechanisms for this reconstruction to develop and to be implemented. And this mechanism is extremely important, even though it sounds very bureaucratic, but it is very important because oftentimes, you know, the uh, assistance which is flowing into the conflict zones is really not spent in the most optimal way. And I think in case of Ukraine, there will be several you know, uh, objectives behind this reconstruction. There's a need of emergency support, which is already coming in to rebuild houses, rebuild critical infrastructure. I think Ukraine estimates at the moment that more than $100 billion of national critical infrastructure, that is, you know, heating, water supplies, electricity supplies um, uh, that have been destroyed by the war. Another challenge, of course, in reconstruction is, you know, really to try to now rewire Ukraine's economy uh, in the process of integration with the EU. But more broadly, you know, we see, of course, Russia now destroying and taking uh, control, occupying the, the most industrial parts of Ukraine. So going forward, you know, even if uh, those regions are going to be um, uh, you know, liberated, the Russian forces will be pushed out of those regions. You know, clearly they are very, very fundamentally destroyed. So, so there needs to be a different kind of economic basis for a large country like Ukraine. And finally, I think there is also a question about broader institutional reform, something which can happen even today while the war is still going on. And that is, of course, fighting corruption. It's about you know, improving the judiciary. It's improving uh, the kind of uh, mechanisms for Ukrainian you know, uh, government and governance to function. And, and all of that, of course, requires funding as well. And, and we're seeing quite a number of commitments now coming through um, from the West more broadly. Well, um... Uh, I think, you know, so far the West has been much more united than many uh, people, some no doubt people in the Kremlin expected it would be. But we're, we're coming to the hard part now, where the economic consequences of this war are uh, playing out in a cost of living crisis uh, in Western Europe. And of course, uh, in, in a food crisis that is building uh, around the world, particularly in developing countries in, in Africa and the Middle East. So uh, first of all, I'd like to ask you whether, what your assessment is of uh, how, how you think Western unity will hold um, and whether you think, you know, when we, if we get to energy rationing, uh, if we've got, you know, gasoline prices soaring uh, uh, during the driving season, as they call it in the United States, uh, whether you think that uh, public support will hold and if public support doesn't hold, um, what will that, what will be the political impact of that? Well, I think the uh, much talked about strategic divisions or strategic kind of differences within the Western camp, so to speak, uh, between those who advocate for more immediate ceasefire and then addressing and solving this kind of territorial issue for negotiations, and those who can continue to support um, continuation of the of the war and then definitive military victory on the part of Ukraine. I think at the moment, those kind of tensions, you know, have retreated to the background because Ukrainian government and authorities have clearly sent very strong signal uh, that they are not going to support and, and, and accept the ceasefire proposal from some Europeans and they will continue fighting and they're putting a lot of hope on this counteroffensive, be it in the summer or in the autumn, once the weapons arrive and clearly 
uh, there is a very strong backing from Ukrainian people as well for that position. Uh, various opinion polls demonstrated 90% of Ukrainians still continue to believe that Ukraine is uh, going to prevail on the battlefield uh, and, and will be able to liberate its territories. Where I think the biggest um, you know, challenge comes now uh, is that uh, the costs that the Europeans are experiencing, Europeans in particular, because Europe is carrying the brunt of those costs because of that dependency on Russian energy. And uh, the costs are coming from the, uh, from the trends that are now more or less set in stone, whether we have ceasefire or not. It's, it's, it's decoupling, paying the price of decoupling from Russian oil and gas. It's really paying the price of, you know, disruption to supply chains and other economic, uh, you know, uh, trends that are happening around Eurasia, which are going to be in, in the long run uh, with us, whether we have ceasefire or not in the short term. And finally, of course, you know, uh, the supply of uh, agricultural goods from Ukraine will depend to a large extent whether Ukraine controls its ports. And uh, with a ceasefire in the short term, that's not going to sort, uh, sort out this, the situation because of course it will create kind of frozen conflict in which um, it will be very difficult to rebuild those kind of Black Sea connections uh, that were there before the war started. So in that sense, you know, from the, in terms of economic impact on Europe, even if ceasefire arrives today, you know, the costs are already set in stone, set in train, which are going to be with us for some time. Where I think the strategic differences are in the longer term is that there are a number of European governments that are concerned uh, about the cost of the long-term coexistence and this almost like a resilience, uh, relative resilience, alongside, you know, hostile Russia, which is clearly going to be hostile for quite a long period of time. And what will happen if this war is allowed to run for a long, long period of time, potentially leading to escalation, which will spill over beyond the borders of Ukraine, or certainly can potentially even spill over in the nuclear or other domains. Uh, and, and there are a number of European governments that are raising questions, you know, say, if Russia is definitively defeated, what kind of Russia it is going to be and how can Europe then coexist with this Russia? What will be the cost of that? Uh, for Europe. And I think those kind of concerns are not going to go away. At the moment, we really do not see any um, uh, clear thinking uh, of how that relationship can uh, be structured. I mean, we're not yet in this new Cold War in which we know exactly how we structure. We have a kind of a structure of confrontation. Uh, it is very much, you know, an escalation, dangerous escalation, which could lead towards, you know, much greater cost to Europe, not only in terms of you know, defense spending and economic spending, but, you know, potentially further spillovers of conflict. And I think this is where the more that kind of prospect of, you know, enlargement and spillovers and, and greater, you know, risks, you know, emerge, the more I think perhaps there will be those divisions re-emerging around those who would want to contain uh, this conflict and find a way to channel this confrontation from the battlefield into negotiation process or into arms control, into other um, you know, processes and those who will continue to support undoubtedly, you know, further continuation of confrontation on the battlefield. Yeah, I guess that's partly the, the division between those countries, particularly in, in Central and Eastern Europe, who think that there are, they are already at war. Uh, and on the other hand, those countries in Western Europe who think that the whole aim of this is to avoid a wider war 
while helping Ukraine to endure and to, to prevail in the long term. And let me turn to, to Jamie now. We had last week a, a NATO summit, uh, which put on a big display of unity and made some big headline announcements. We had the, the headline announcement of uh, the invitation to Sweden and Finland to join the alliance, uh, enlarging it in the teeth of uh, uh, Mr. Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but also, uh, we had a, an announcement on the, the decision to generate uh, 300,000 troops in uh, a rapid, uh, you know, rapidly deployable, rapid reaction force. Um, where are they going to come from, Jamie? And how real was that display of unity? Um, yes, uh, obviously, very good questions. I, NATO put on a good display of unity because the focus was very much on defending NATO. Uh, and that's always going to be an easier thing to NATO, for NATO to grapple with than, of course, the questions that Oksana uh, was just talking about, which are you know, military supplies to Ukraine and how long it's feasible and desirable to keep the Ukrainians in, in, in the fight. And I think in terms of defending NATO, yes, the summit was a success, uh, as you say, Paul, we had this very good flurry of commitment from the United States, from President Biden, uh, giving Poland something that it's wanted for years, which is a full US Army Corps headquarters to be permanently uh, deployed uh, on its territory with a, a permanent supporting battalion there as well. Uh, the US deploying more ships to Spain, more F-35 uh, fighter aircraft to the uh, UK, uh, and generally you know, committing to uh, a fairly sizable uh, number of rotation forces which will move in and out of, of, of Europe. Uh, and you saw many other allies make a, a similar commitments to reinforce NATO's uh, eastern uh, flank. So from the point of view of collective solidarity, that was good news. I mean, you even had uh, evidence of backfilling. For example, the Czechs said that they will take care of uh, Slovak air defense, uh, while Slovakia replaces its MiG-29 uh, old Soviet aircraft with modern aircraft. Now, on the 300,000 troop uh, level of ambition, well, on paper, it should be easily doable because Europe, uh, uh, without the United States, has 1.6 million soldiers on the book. So to uh, want just about one-fifth of that number to be uh, usable in some sort of fairly high state of readiness doesn't sound too demanding. You know, otherwise, what's the point? of spending all of this extra money uh, on defense. And certainly uh, there are some quick and easy solutions. For example, if Finland uh, comes smoothly into the alliance, which hopefully will now happen, uh, because Turkey, of course, in Madrid lifted uh, its objection to uh, the protocols of accession for Sweden and Finland going ahead. And indeed in Brussels this morning, uh, Finland and Sweden will be at NATO to sign the protocols of accession. Well, if you think that Finland has five uh, well-equipped armored brigades and a reserve uh, quickly mobilizable of 200 thousand and Finland alone could uh, more or less take care of that number but that's not of course what it's all about Paul is it it's not just relying upon one country and accounting tricks it's uh, sharing the burden equitably uh, over NATO in general uh, there was some good news from Madrid for example the German Chancellor Scholz announced that Germany will now uh, reform an armored division 
um, uh, the only really uh, European country outside Turkey to uh, have that level of ambition at the moment, with 15,000 troops and, of course, a lot of tanks and, and, and armour. But, but uh, clearly, I think there's going to be a division of labour here in the future, which is that there will be, if you like, uh, some uh, uh, maritime powers. One thinks of the US, one thinks of the UK in particular, uh, which will have limited forces in Europe while relying upon their air power and their maritime power to protect NATO's flag in the Baltics, in the Mediterranean, in the high north. And then you're going to have, you know, you know your European history, the more land-based continental powers that have traditionally had large armies, the Poles, the Germans, the Romanians, uh, to some extent, the Italians. Uh, and so I think the trick here is to really get those uh, uh, European land powers, Germany in particular, with the uh, extra commitment to uh, 1 billion uh, euros to fix the problems of the, uh, the Bundeswehr, to really sort of constitute, uh, if not division, like Germany, at least a large number of brigades. So on paper, it should be doable. Of course, NATO often falls short of these false goals and they end up being a driving mechanism. Uh, but uh, it's probably a realistic level of ambition and it would not look good for NATO given the higher defence spending and the large number of troops it has on the books were it not able to achieve it. The political unity uh, seemed to be there for the moment. Um, but do you think that the issue of Sweden and Finland is, is finally resolved or do you, you think there could be more bumps on the road when it comes to ratification? Well, I, I think it will be harder for Turkey going forward to make a case for uh, blocking uh, Finland and Sweden from joining. Although Erdogan, of course, who likes, you know, as Shylock in The Merchant of Venice to have his pound of flesh, uh, did say immediately uh, at the end of the uh, summit that it was not a done deal because he could not send the instruments of ratification for Sweden and Finland to join NATO to the Turkish parliament if he wasn't satisfied regarding the implementation of, of, of the deal. But, but of course, the protocols of accession will be signed. So this will take Finland and Sweden much closer uh, along the road. Secondly, uh, you know, the Turks got a lot of what they wanted, frankly. Uh, they got uh, Finland and Sweden to review their terrorism legislation, uh, to condemn the PKK and other uh, Kurdish uh, nationalist groups that Turkey doesn't like, uh, to uh, agree to lift their uh, arms embargo on Turkey uh, as they go forward. Um, and one of the things that Erdogan seems now to still be insisting on is probably something that Sweden in particular, which is the country which is in the crosshairs here more than Finland, can't really deliver, which is to sort of extradite to Turkey anybody that the Turks feel is a, an enemy of Turkey living in Sweden, uh, particularly if those uh, people, for example, of Kurdish uh, descent, have acquired Swedish citizenship in the, in the meantime. That's really not compatible with uh, uh, European human rights law. And the Swedes have said, look, you know, the government doesn't do this. We're, we, we live in a democracy here. This is something for the courts to decide. My hope is that because Turkey obtained a lot of what it wanted, had its day in the sun, made its point, and also got some assurances from Biden in Madrid that uh, he will try to now pursue the authorization of the sale of F-16 aircraft to Turkey, uh, you know, particularly once Erdogan gets through the elections in a few months' time, uh, that it will all sort of quieten down from here on. But, of course, you know, the Turks have surprised in the past, uh, and they may do so again. Well, Jamie, one more question on the on the military situation. Are, are NATO countries running out of equipment and ammunition that they can supply to Ukraine? Uh, the short answer. 
Oh, excuse me, Paul, but the short answer is yes, they are. I mean, they, they, this has been really edifying uh, regarding uh, the low level of stocks of ammunition, uh, of shells, of equipment in nearly all of the NATO countries, including in countries like the United States uh, or the UK, which really do have very significant uh, defence uh, uh, budgets. What, what, what has happened, uh, and here in the UK we have a classic example, is that in the years of uh, counterinsurgency operations in, in Afghanistan, stand. Um, uh, allies were sort of cannibalizing uh, military units, which means sort of taking tanks from other units or helicopters or whatever, ever, more helicopters than tanks, uh, to be able to send very modest sort of battalions uh, or, or battle groups to places like uh, Afghanistan. Um, secondly, uh, they were in the business of deterrence, which meant that they didn't have to take a lot of heavy equipment or ammunition with them because they weren't expecting to fight. They simply, as Woody Allen once said, had to show up. 90% of success in life is just showing up um, and, and therefore just having a, a, a presence. But now that NATO has suddenly said, well, wait a minute, uh, we may have to fight a war, uh, the shortage of stocks uh, and the pressure that allies are under to either give those stocks to Ukraine in the belief that that is where the West is defending itself or keep them in reserve uh, for possible NATO contingencies, those decisions are really becoming uh, urgent. The other thing uh, is that the French and the UK uh, and the US are all discovering as they give contracts to industry to resupply, the industry simply doesn't have the production lines. It, it wasn't expecting big orders. It, it was sort of winding down and dealing with cyber security at the end of the Cold War. Uh, the UK yesterday even had to report that it depends on China for many of the important electronic components of some of the weapon systems that it's trying to uh, now rebuild. So we really have to sort of retool uh, our whole production to gear up for more rapid production. Um, for example, where you are, Paul, in Paris, um, President Macron has announced that he's bringing together the Ministry of Defence with the Direct, Direction Générale de l'Armement uh, to look at how, you know, they can uh, come up with new novel weapons ways of production, uh, uh, how they can sort of have a closer partnership with industry to get the 24-month, two-year uh, manufacturing cycle down to something closer to three months. The US in the Pentagon has organized with industry a contest to have proposals coming in from the American defense industry as to how they can ramp up production with different techniques. And they've had 800 suggestions so far. So there's now a real sense of urgency uh, that we need to uh, gear up our production uh, uh, because of, of of course industry is expecting higher budgets but it but you know after covid after the years of lean uh, contracts uh, it hasn't invested in the skills in the tools in the manufacturing equipment uh, to be able to respond quickly particularly if we're as i said not going to be dependent upon china or other countries to supply those vital components but want to reshore them ourselves well final question to both of you um do you believe a deal will be reached and implemented to enable Ukrainian grain to be exported by sea from Odessa? Or are we, is all this shadow boxing basically blame avoidance and we're going to see the global famine that uh, is already beginning to take shape? Oksana. Well, I think the deal is likely to be reached in my, in my view, although its implementation is not gonna be very trivial, uh, not least because the mining of the Black Sea has now spread over quite a large territory and therefore it will be quite a challenging process to navigate through that uh, um, for, for, for shipping. Um, but uh, I think the bigger challenge in my view is that we are now in a cycle 
where again, even if you unblock the export of uh, grain from Ukraine, it's not going to quickly alleviate you know, the kind of disruption to uh, you know, food uh, supply around the world, which we are observing now, because it's not only based on the existing grain, it's also based on the fact that you know, the fertilizer production has now been disrupted, both you know, as a result of you know, uh, conflict in Ukraine, but also, of course, a lot of LNG is now flowing into um, uh, you know, into the uh, you know energy sector away from the fertilizer sector, even in the West, even in the United States, for example. So, so there's less fertilizer, less production of energy of grain or, or agricultural goods, and also more than forty countries around the world now have imposed you know trade restrictions on the export of various agricultural goods. So the, the whole global trade in in food has been disrupted. So it will take years to you know roll back from from the current reality, even in the best case scenario. So I'm afraid I'm rather skeptical and pessimistic that we will be able to get out of the global crisis, even if uh, you know the uh, you know death support block. Jamie, Oksana has given once again a complete answer, Paul. All I would add is that the EU and the Allies now seem to be focusing more on Plan B, which is to you know, obviously continue to push still for some kind of humanitarian corridor in the Black Sea, although that doesn't seem to be making much progress at the moment. Nobody seems willing to send warships in to enforce it. Uh, and uh, it's not clear that even with the liberation of Snake Island, there's sufficient sort of space for the Ukrainians in the Black Sea uh, to be able to run the Russian gauntlet. So Plan B seems increasingly this EU scheme to transport the grain uh, by truck uh, to ports in Lithuania, or as Boris Johnson was saying yesterday, to use the Danube. But whether Plan B can get the kind of volumes out which are needed uh, and which the uh, sea routes across the Black Sea once supplied, again, is an open question. Well, very, uh, very many thanks to both of you for those uh, concise answers. And uh, that does it for this week's uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for your participation. Thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in. And uh, we'll have one more podcast to come before the summer break. So stay tuned.